You're listening to the NFL on TuneIn. It's No Huddle with Brian Weber and Cordell Stewart. Let's continue to analyze a wild divisional round of the playoffs weekend. Pleased to be joined by Will Brinson from CBSSports.com. Will, let's start with that game in Pittsburgh. Given what you'd seen from Blake Bortles in recent weeks, how surprised were you by the fact he played well yesterday in that road victory? I'm always surprised when Blake Bortles plays well, and that does not put me in exclusive, unique company, but... I think the Jaguars and Nathaniel Hackett and Doug Marone did a really good job, guys, of identifying ways in which they could beat the Steelers from a schematic and, um, you know, just sort of tactical approach standpoint that utilized Blake Bortles. Specifically, they had Blake throwing on early down. And if you look at the numbers, my colleague Sean, Sean Wagner at CBSSports.com and, and Pete Briscoe talked about this too, but if you look at the numbers, Blake is actually a really good quarterback on, on the early downs, and he struggles in obvious passing down situations. And what the, Steelers, I mean, what the Jaguars for the most part did early on was to put him in spots where the Steelers weren't expecting a pass. They were loading up to stop the run. Blake was completing passes, and I think that that built the confidence for later in the game that allowed him to execute on third down in critical situations. And more or less, I mean, I mean, if we're being honest, the Jaguars' coaches ran circles around and deep pants the Steelers' coaches. And, I, yeah, look, I think the Steelers have a good coaching staff, but I don't think they showed up in a big way uh, against the Jaguars, and I think a lot of that led to Jacksonville coming out to a big lead Poor execution by Pittsburgh, who was probably looking ahead to New England, and Jacksonville did enough to steal the deal. But how great, and, and I'll use the term great because there's a couple stats with this football team that I think that really dictate to many that they are. You think about how they force fumbles or even interceptions for that matter. You get 21 interceptions, 22 actually now with the one that we saw about Miles Jack. 22 interceptions. They take two back to the house. They have 18 forced fumbles. They have 13 recovered, and of those 13, they actually took six back to the house, including the one yesterday. How magnificent is this for a defense? And no one's really putting them in the class of the 85 Bears defense and also that 2000 Super Bowl defense that was by the Baltimore Ravens. I don't think, Cordell, anybody's putting them in the class with the like the – 13 Seahawks or whatever the, you know, the Jaguars, basically what I mean is the Jaguars aren't getting the same respect that we usually throw around for a final four team that's playing lights out defense at this time of the year. You know, usually with a team like this, we say, well, is this the great, you know, is this one of the great defenses? Well, people be like, well, the Jaguars are really good. I don't know if they're one of the all time greats. These guys are not just technically sound, fast, uh, explosive, can rush the passer, can cover the best. Uh, you know, wide receivers in the league, but you're right. They turn the ball over and they turn those, those turnovers into points, like quickly, not just give Blake the ball and maybe right. set him up for some points. They turn it off and take it right to the house. The Miles Jack interception you're talking about, that was beautiful. I mean, yeah. he, he tipped, tap-toed, you know, was it Nate Burleson with the toe-drag swag he always talks about. I mean, like, right. Miles Jack cradled that thing like an egg and then toe-dragged on the sidelines. Um, you see Yannick Ngakwe, Scoop and score off, excuse me, Kelvin Smith, scoop and score off of Yannick Ngakwe's uh, strip stack. I mean, they're just guys that ball hawk and, and make plays. And I, what's interesting about it is how they match up against New England because they really can 
you know, potentially cover Rob Gronkowski. They really can potentially get pressure on Tom Brady with four guys up front. And they really are deep and talented and young and explosive at every level of that defense. I, they just don't have a, you know, you can run on them a little bit, but they don't have a huge week. Talking playoffs with Will Brinson from CBSSports.com. Will, let's go through what we saw on Saturday. Nick Foles played efficiently. Did you see enough in the win over Atlanta to make you believe he can hold this offense together against a very tough Minnesota defense in the NFC Championship game? Yes and no, Brian. Yes, I mean, like, look, credit to Eagles coaching staff. Um, They did a tremendous job adjusting. You know, Doug Peterson – unleashed the RPOs on, on on the Falcons defense and they didn't know what to do. And once they started moving the ball and had a lead, uh, they were able to really sort of lean into that offensive line. And, and man, those big boys up front for Philadelphia opened up holes all day uh, down the stretch. And I think that's what really helped Philly win. The, the problem that I, I see with, with the matchup against the, the Vikings is that just like the Jaguars, Minnesota doesn't have a whole lot of weaknesses on defense. You know, we saw – Minnesota, and it's sort of being lost in all the insanity, and we'll get to that in a second, but Minnesota shut down Drew Brees completely. He shut shut down Sean Payton and Drew Brees for an entire half of football before they exploded in the second half and made it a fascinating game. I don't think that the Eagles are going to come back from 17-0 against Minnesota if they're down that at halftime. And as much as I like the Eagles' defense, I just think that the offense is not – strong enough, not stout enough to really produce the points necessary against that, that Vikings defense. And, and, you know, frankly, it probably starts with Nick Foles. How do you handle this, the, the situation with Mike Malarkey uh, there in Tennessee when he's done a great job? He's gotten his team to a position last year where they had a chance to go to, to win a division and go to the postseason. Their quarterback get hurt in that game against Jacksonville. And then this year, they play well enough to beat Kansas City in Arrowhead, uh, which is a tough place to play. And they ran into a juggernaut of a team in New England, but yet thinking that he would come back, now he comes back today. He's fired. What's your take on that, Will? Yeah, I thought that – so I kind of look at this the way, same way I look at how the Bears ended up with Mitchell Trubisky. I like the end result, but I'm not a big fan of the process. Like, I, I, look, I don't want to – Mike Malarkey um, was, has been, done a lot of great things as a coach in this league. I mean, you know, he was an offensive coordinator at Pittsburgh forever. Um you know, think that he's gotten various head coaching jobs, exceeded expectations for the for a Titans team that had a lot of early picks. But I think when you look at what happened with that offense this year, and you see sort of the the step back that Marcus Mariota has taken, um, the lack of early development, and I get that it's it's a it's perhaps an injury thing, but with Corey Davis, the wide receiver they took early, and then you know Derrick Henry and the usage with him versus DeMarco Murray. I like the idea. I like the idea of bringing in somebody like Josh McDaniels. It doesn't appear that's going to be an option for the Titans, which is kind of interesting. And so that makes the process even more fascinating. To me, what John Robinson and Amy Adams Strunk did from the perspective of playing yo-yo with Mike Malarkey, and Mike Malarkey came out and was open about this, right? He said, hey, you know, this is affecting my family and not in a positive way, I don't think that that's how you want to act as a franchise and as the leaders of a franchise. And I realize that the ultimate goal is to win a Super Bowl. It is to to get the best possible team and the best possible coaching staff in place. And I understand that maybe there are better options out there for the, for the personnel involved here and maybe to work with John Robinson. But I'm not a big fan of how they handled, you know, letting Malarkey flail in the wind, leading up to a playoff game after he snuck, you know, after he, 
beat the Jaguars in Week 17, and then you know do the whole thing where there's rumors about him getting an extension. They give a voice, you know, they they say that he's going to end up sticking around, and then you yank the carpet out from under him. To me, that is that is a telltale sign of dysfunction and, and not a great process, even if maybe the result is fine. Well, Brent, at CBSSports.com is our guest on the NFL on TuneIn. Will, last one for me, now that we've had a couple days to process things, what do you make of Steve Sarkeesian's play calling for the Falcons with the game on the line Saturday night? That shovel pass was interesting, I'll say. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's the nicest thing I've heard anybody say about that shovel pass, Brian. I, I don't think that you're going to – I don't think you're going to have a lot of people tell you that Steve Sarkeesian did a great job with the play calling. You know, you go back and you if we're just talking strictly about the final possession there in the Eagles red zone, I think you look at the first down and the fade to Julio uh, from the nine-yard line, and you can, you can live with that. Uh, maybe a little bit of a better throw. Ronald Darby had very good coverage, but a better, better throw perhaps Julio brings it in, and we're not having this conversation. The second down shovel pass, uh, is inexplicable. I, I don't think that anybody could can justify it. I, I would. I haven't. I don't think Sarkeesian's talked about it, but I would love to hear the justification of it. You know, you bring in you know Taron Ward, your, your third down running back, and you you try and get cute with it up the middle. It's just not. You don't do that when you have the skill position guys like Devonta Freeman, Tevin Coleman, who got you down there, Julio Jones. I mean, I get that Matt Ryan threw a pass, but you're sort of taking it out of his hands. The third down slant to me is what they should have called on first down. Uh, Darby was playing the same off-man stuff that he played uh, on that first down. You could have squeezed it in there, and then you have three downs from two instead of instead of uh, three from the from the nine. Um, and that was a good play call. And the fourth down, look, the Eagles saw it coming. They knew it was coming, and you cut the field in half. That's those are two things you don't want to do as a play caller: is, is be transparent to the defense and to minimize the amount of space you have to work with in an already compact area. So I thought that you know it was a poor decision to do that. And uh, look, Derek Coleman, bless him for for being a, a you know for, for doing what he's doing, given all you know what he's gone through. But to line up your fullback on the left side all by himself and have him run a slant as the only bailout option, it just didn't seem like a good play design and even worse decision to call it in that spot. Well, great information as always. Thanks for joining us again today on the NFL on TuneIn. Yeah, guys, have a great night. You've been listening to No Huddle with Brian Weber and former Steelers quarterback Cordell Slash Stewart live on the NFL on TuneIn. 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown. The National Football League is on TuneIn.